Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to the Invested Podcast, where we, of course, are continuing to unfold real investing, not fake investing. <laughs> this is real investing. As not, in long-term, sp- ultra-knowledgeable. Yes. This is, this is where you buy something and you have the same, the same degree of certainty it's going to make money as buying a house in a good neighborhood. 20 years down the road, you're going to make money. So that kind of certainty buying individual companies is not how most people invest. It is, however, how the best investors in the world invest. And we're copying them. And we've been copying. I've been copying them for 40 years. And uh, Danielle's now been been copying copying them for five or six. For five years. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So let's let's dive in and just, you know, real real quick background in all in all uh, full disclosure here. Um, I run a couple of funds. Yeah. Probably have I don't know, under under two hundred million in in capital that's being invested. And Danielle is managing Two hundred dollars. That's correct. <laughs> so I can't buy any Amazon. It's sad. I'm teasing her. She <laughs> she has a few hundred dollars more than that. <laughs> I tell her. Here's what I tell her: is if if you ever call up a corporation and want to talk to their investment people and get a serious answer, you have to tell them that you are a professional and you're managing money and. If they ask you how much you're managing, you say under a hundred million dollars. <laughs> I mean, they'll, they'll why say that? I mean, just go go big or go home. No, because it's under, over over a hundred million. You have to disclose your actual. Oh, that's a good point. They, they can look you up. <laughs> they can look you up. Under a hundred million, they just assume you're a very rich family, <laughs> and uh, and they don't they don't go much farther than that. So we're we're unpacking here, and we've been doing a checklist that I built over the years, and uh, we finished that up last time. Yeah, we did a bunch of episodes on the checklist, and God, it's just my favorite thing to look at and talk about and understand and go through. And we had some hiccups in our checklist episode trot. So if you're somebody who's just coming to this and wants to go back and listen to all the checklist episodes, go back like a year or so, go back to like fall-ish last year, I think. And all the episodes that are about the checklist are labeled checklist, but that's the best I can do to help. We should and blame that on COVID. Yeah. I mean, well, everything. It was COVID. Everything's, yeah. it, it's probably true, it. actually. I just can't remember because of COVID. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Danielle got long COVID and is still working through it. What a what a trip. Well, and that's the, been. the actual COVID probably happened sometime in the middle of the checklist episodes. Yeah. I, I actually yeah, have 100%. no idea. So 
Yeah. Last year has been a tough year. I went under, I went under the knife on anesthesia three different times for three totally unrelated things. And Danielle's had long COVID for the entire year. And it's just been like, what the heck is going on here? It's like a lifetime of getting away with it. Just, <laughs> just came, all the chickens came back to roost all at once or something. I don't know. For me anyway. I don't know. I don't know. I don't but feel like anyway, we're, we're back. We're anything. back cracking here. And uh, we're doing better enough. Better yeah, better enough. enough. Which is Better enough. So a good amount of things to ask for these days. There's and, a lot um, we could chat about today. And just to finish up the checklist description, <laughs> go back, look, listen to those episodes. And um, and then the recent ones, I think we did, what, like at least five or six all together, which are the, the back end of the checklist and finished it up last week. So what I want to know about the checklist is it's really long. Like to me, it seems long. Does it seem long to you? Oh, it's a process. Yeah. yeah. So it's a one process. of the things that we talk about a lot with, like we hear other investors talk about and in, in um, like, for example, the Checklist Manifesto book, Atul Gawande's incredible book, he talks a lot about length of checklist needing to be appropriate, meaning yes. not too long, not too short. So why this length for yours? Uh, it kind of is what it is. Um, we tried to make it as short as we could, but and, and it kind of, I guess the, the checklist started off by just leveraging on Warren Buffett hmm. with, you know, looking at, um, what, 60 years of letters where Warren has been so forthcoming about his mistakes and he mm -hmm. would write about the mistakes and, and we, I just went through it and just wrote down the mistakes and then started making a checklist out of the mistakes. Because you said on one of the podcasts that um, Monish Pabrai did that. So you did that yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. So And I that's had, funny because that's what I've just done in yeah. my reading of it. That's it's so crazy. It's really good. And we all end up with different checklists because you look at it differently. We see the words. Yes, because he doesn't eyes. like put it in bold and say, here is a mistake, colon, and then describe right. the mistake. It's all... Sometimes he says, like, I made this direct mistake, but it's um, it's much more read between the lines to try to figure yeah. out what the actual mistake was. Yes, exactly. Very, very tough. And then I've been investing for 40 years, so I've made lots of mistakes, and then those go into the checklist. And then I've leveraged on um, Monash to a certain degree, reading, reading his stuff, reading... Um, Bill Ackman, I really like Bill mm -hmm. a lot. He's a mm -hmm. checklist guy. And he's got an eight-point checklist. Just Google Bill Ackman eight-point eight checklist. And um, he just recently, I think we've talked about this, but he just recently came back to that checklist and you know, re-realizing how important it was to stay within the checklist, to, you know, comfortably within it. Don't get on the edges of it. Because mm -hmm. you can talk yourself into thinking you know more than you know about a company real easily. Yeah. And um, and so this checklist becomes real important to make sure you're not doing that. And we, we, we find, I find to this day, honestly, that the toughest thing to do is the inversion. And we talked about that when we were, like not too long ago when we were working through the inversion stuff. Mm -hmm. But my analysts have trouble with that because you get so invested in in the the thing that you're studying or researching in the company, 
you get so invested by the time you get to that point, mm-hmm. as you pointed out. Um, and I just started, after you pointed that out, I started realizing that a lot of the battles that I fight, I'm fighting um, to get these guys to do a real inversion. Hmm. Tell right? me more to, about that. Well, it's just so hard to really tear apart your own idea. Yeah, It for really sure. is tough. And so I do it for them, right? And that's the advantage of having an institutional type of structure hmm. is that I've got people I can, and I can stand above it a little bit and, and push back because um, I'm not so invested, right? I haven't spent 200 hours on something. Yeah. Uh, th- that is now like, I got, I want to do this, you know, like my guys all run their own funds and they, they all, you know, I want to buy this in my fund. And I'm like, no, you don't get to do anything in your fund until, until it goes, until I fully reject it or fully take it. And we all finish what we're doing here because I don't want that bias to creep in. Right. If they've already bought it for their own fund, how much is confirmation bias now happening? Right. That's just crazy get out of control, not to mention front running. So um, lots of problems come from from overly committing to something um, before you finish the inversion. And boy, hmm. it's tough to stay balanced and stay humble and keep hubris out of there and really remember you probably don't know as much as you think you do. And that's the whole point of the inversion and it's very hard to do it for real. That's, that's, a, that's really tough. So anyway, all of this stuff has come about, all of these checklist points have come about, and there's probably, geez, I don't know, 70 or 80 of them, um, from mistakes, mostly, you know? Starting, starting with some basic things I learned early on about just basic investing, and the, you know, they're obvious things. You know, you want a big moat, you know, obviously. Yeah. But then, then it's mistakes. Like, one of the new ones that's on there is just from that the most recent mistake I made, which I think was six years ago. Um, by the way, I make mistakes every day, everybody. You should not think I'm walking on water. But because of the nature of the kind of investing we do, because of the strategy, the mistakes I make tend to be mistakes of things I didn't do, right? That turned out to be really good. <laughs> like, oh, man. I sent, I sent uh, one of our guys over to China about um, two years ago or so <clears throat> to look at BYD, Alibaba, and JD.com. And he really dug into it and came back. And <clears throat> we understood there was a lot of problems in China with regard to regulation and whether we could own a stock there and if we were going to have any rights at all in it and all the problems that that would raise, <clears throat> all of which have been recently kind of dealt with in China. But he came back and he's like, ah, oh, yeah, we should really buy these these things. And one of them went up 500% since then. Mm. And the other one, one, one of the others went up 200%. So it's, it's hard. Those are, those are mistakes I make all the time. M- you know, mistakes of not buying something <clears throat> that was pretty close. It was pretty close. I, I, was, I was getting really close to that, but there were issues that I just couldn't get over. And then, of course, they just explode to the moon, right? Well, and I think that's where the inversion, like that's where we, you know, we're having like basically an argument about how heavy you go on an inversion because those are the mistakes that I make all the time, the mistakes of omission, because I can, I can imagine 10 different scenarios. This goes bad. 
So I, I think that's it's, I think right, it's really hard to walk that line between, yeah, of course I can imagine 10 different scenarios in which this goes bad and they could definitely happen. They're not like crazy, like an earthquake's going to hit and the world will all implode. Like they're like reasonable. And at the same time, this country, this company's got a really good shot at making it. Oh, Maybe even powerful. if those things happen, you know, I don't, I don't like the sound of that at all. It's got a really good shot at making it. I want to buy companies that it would be astonishing if they didn't. But like there, you just described multiple companies that you regret not buying. Yep. Because you could see a very legit uh, argument against them doing well. You could see the inversion being yeah. a really good argument. Yep. And yet you're saying you regret not buying this. No, I, I did the right thing by by virtue of what I how I invest. So I don't regret okay, it. Okay, so other if than, you did if shoot, you did the right I could thing have made 500%. at the time, but that's not a mistake. That's the problem it's not here a mistake. With, with the description. No, if it's you, not a mistake. If you do the right thing at the time based on the oh, information we have. Because I'm saying that they're mistakes. Yeah. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, it's And you're right. I, I probably have some, <clears throat> I'm human. I have some degree of regret when I think on hindsight, I could have done that. Um, but when if I, you know, that's sort of more of an emotional response. Like, oh, yeah, I should have, could have, would have. But when I look at why I didn't, it was very rational why I didn't. Yeah. It made total sense to me at the time. I just didn't know enough about China. Well, That's the end so of the day. because when I identify a mistake that I make, I try not to do that one again. Right. So was there a mistake that you're going to try not to do again in those situations? Probably. I, I would say given my desire to have a life and enjoy my life and do all the kinds of stuff I love to do, the answer would be no, because there's 24 hours in the day. But if I was to dig a little harder and say, you know, what could I have done that would have, would have uh, avoided missing out on those opportunities, it would have been work a lot harder. Well, yeah, that's not really a mistake, you know, right? Like that's just choices. Yeah. So that's choices. choices. And, and, but I just didn't know enough. And if I had worked a lot harder, I maybe could have known enough. In this actual instance, actually, actually, China has changed its rules and regulations um, such that now I'm actually feeling quite comfortable. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. So things have changed. Things have changed. The information, the inputs have changed. But like... I get it because we even did a whole podcast about my mistake of not buying Lululemon. And the reason I didn't was that I didn't understand it well enough, not because I couldn't understand the company, but because I was brand new at this whole investing thing and I was freaked out and 
I didn't feel like I knew enough. And I think looking back, I didn't know enough. And that was actually the right choice. It is. Even though, (laughs) even though it would have turned out really well. Yeah. So, so it's the the difference between an actual mistake and, and, you know, like Annie Duke puts in thinking and bets, like you have to make your decisions. You have to bet. Not that we're betting here, but the way she puts it is you have to bet based on the information that you have at the time. And well, then let everyone know Annie Duke is not an investor. She's a gambler. Exactly. Her <laughs> book, her book is her book amazing. Is very good. Her yeah, book is good. Uh, amazing. Also, the well, let, me, let me put it like this. It's really good. And she reads it and I recommend it. Oh, cool. So let me, um, let me put it like this. If it, this is what Buffett thought up to kind of give the best metaphor for this problem, that Ted Williams wanted to be the best hitter in the world. And he got, this is way back in the fifties, 1950s. And he got game films and watched him swing at balls in games, plus batting practice, plus, you know, where they film him. And he took the strike rectangle of the strike zone of baseball. You know what that looks like, right? A rectangle of the strikes on a baseball? Rectangle of the strike zone on a baseball game. Oh, kind of. It's like like chest to knees or something, right? Chest to knees. And the width of the plate. Okay. So that creates a rectangle. Okay. With me? So you can kind of picture a rectangle. Yeah. And then he took baseballs and fitted them in as many times as they would go in rows mm. on this rectangle. Mm, okay. Right? So maybe you got 40 baseballs in there. Okay. All right. Then he studied game films and his own batting practice and noted where he would crush the ball. Where was that ball in that strike zone? where he would crush it. Where was and his where was sweet the, spot? Sweet spot. And where was the ball where he would not crush it? Ah, okay. And he found that there were places where if he swung at the ball there, he wasn't going to probably get a hit. Even though it was a strike, it was something that he theoretically should swing at. And if he already had two strikes on him, he would have to swing at it. No choice. But Buffett pointed out that we're like batters standing at the plate and we don't have to swing at all. And this is to your point. We don't have to swing. And <laughs> our hittable spots are much smaller than Warren Buffett's. But we got to find out what they are, right? And that's what we call our circle of competence or our canyon that we're in. And we, we just start to start where you are, what you're passionate about, what you're talented in, where you spend your money. Those are going to be clues to you about where you're already swinging at the ball, mm-hmm. all right? And what what of those swings do you really understand? What, what comes from that, right? Um, so the idea is to figure out what pitches you can hit. That's the key thing here. Mm-hmm. What investment pitches can you hit? So those would be the things where you understand the business, you know it has a big moat, that you fully understand, you trust the management team and you can buy it on sale. Those are the critical things to figure out that you can hit that thing. If you don't know those things, then that's a ball in a part of the strike zone you can't hit. So with regard to these Chinese companies, honey, I just went, looked hard at these and much of those about those companies was very hittable. Mm-hmm. But there was some stuff that I didn't know for sure. Yeah. And I have learned the discipline of not 
jumping in there when I don't know for sure. It's hard not to. Everything looks really good and you want to invest It is hard. I mean, I'm with you, by the way. I looked at BYD a few years ago and decided that I firmly and consciously did not know enough to evaluate that company. And I I was super bummed about it because Munger was freaking out about the company. And I was like, well, you know, (laughs) who am I? Yeah. If Charlie loves it, I should buy it. (laughs) So I'm not disagreeing. I just went through that process and decided I didn't know enough. And it sucked because I wish I did, you know, like it, it was one of those things where you can see it working out so well. Right. In every way, there's no real reason except that I know I don't know everything. That's <laughs> right. that's it. And that one's so hard that I didn't even know how to start knowing everything. Yeah. It's an entire field I have no real knowledge in, you know, batteries and electric cars and stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah, it just it was overwhelming what I would have to learn in order to pull the trigger on that. So, yeah, and by the way, I, we were both kind of laughing that we didn't buy it just because Charlie did. And, you know, the, obviously the tendency, if you trust someone and really admire their work, is to go, yeah, I really, I trust you, so I'm just going to jump in there. The problem is they're not going to call you up when they discover they made a mistake <laughs> yeah, or that true. something has changed. Yeah, they're not going to call you up. They're going to get out of there quietly and, um, and let you find out about it after that thing has crashed and gone bankrupt. That's yeah. not that's not a problem they're going to worry about. So that's a really the good point. Worst thing in the world is to buy something you don't fully understand because when it starts to go down, you know that our practice is to be ready to buy more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you're afraid to buy more because you start to realize I don't really know why this is going down. I don't know if I really understand the business. All the fear and doubt comes rolling in. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just horrible to be in that situation in addition to that the reason second reason was that exactly what you're saying i did not want to be in that situation where it was going down maybe i could tell why but i didn't really know kind of what a what a reasonable floor would be for that company and munger bought it at an incredibly low price that nobody actually knows because he bought the shares off the market separately from the public equities market. I think it was before it went public, but I'm not 100% on that. It might have just been a separate deal. But it was was, it's a separate bill. We don't know at what price he owns it, but I know that it's way below where the stock even was a few years ago. Right. And so his margin of safety is so much larger than what mine would have been. Right. And that gave me massive pause because he could have been thinking, you know, it's already maxed out right where we are at whatever it was, like 10 <laughs> thinking about or selling it to you. Yeah. And um, and I have no idea what he was thinking about that. He said that he was going to stay in it for a long time, and I'm sure he is. But um, but that's where, like you were saying, you were asking me last time about my confidence in the inversion, whether it was confidence and knowledge about a company or confidence in the price. And in that situation, it was both. But I think the confidence or the lack thereof in the price was really what stopped me of of really not not knowing um, just how how profound is that? That's so profound. Because if you 
aren't really sure you understand the business, then you can't be really sure about the value. Yeah, right. Right. You cannot. If you, if you think you are, you are smoking crack. You really don't understand the business and you're going to put a price on it? Yeah. That's, I mean, you can't even put a low price on it. You can't. I mean, what's it worth? Honest to God. So, and, and that's really actually another really profound thing to remember is that when we look at what these gurus own, you have to remember that sometimes the the information coming to the computer isn't um, information about when they actually bought it. It's information about the price when the computer decided to pick up the fact that they'd bought it. It can be very different sometimes, or that maybe the last time they bought it was at a certain X price, but they own 80% more than that at a price half of that that didn't get picked up in the system. So You mean like through the just the SEC disclosures or something? Yeah, and you okay. just have to make sure that you've got the right information. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just thinking of Bank of America. I just was looking it up here. Bank of America is something that Buffett got a right to buy at five bucks a share mm-hmm. by loaning them some money. Mm-hmm. And then he exercised that right and suddenly had a 10% ownership. And then people would be like, Whoa, Buffett's buying in at $30 or something, right? No, no, he's not. He had warrants for years. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that can really catch you. And, you know, think about this, how how important it is to buy when things are on sale. Bank of America is not about $46 a share as they have suddenly, you know, gotten released from all these holdbacks that they had. Uh, that that rolls right into their earnings and makes it look spectacular. And so, of course, the price is going up because of Wall Street. Wall Street's, they're just, they're so short-term. They're just and short-term. they're so momentum-driven uh, yeah. for their jobs, to preserve their jobs. And um, I was just looking at, at uh, what Value Line, Value Line's a, a really good resource, by the way. They've got some fun things to, of ways of looking at companies and, and uh, splitting out companies they think are really good and on sale and all this. And they were throwing up Bank of America, you know? And I'm like, really? They think this is on sale? And and I find that over and over again. And these mainstream uh, research uh, companies have got to keep promoting stuff as being on sale because they're part of the industry too, hmm. right? I mean, they've got to keep pushing something out there. Who's going to buy their stuff if they... Value Line puts out a thing every week saying nothing's on sale. Nobody's going to buy their stuff. So they have to show, oh, yeah, this, is, this one this one looks good. This one looks good. Playing the momentum game. All of them. And so you just stay away from that and look for the thing that you understand and look for the thing that you understand well enough to put a value on it and then buy it when it's half of that. Yes. And you'll be in such a different place <laughs> if it starts to go down. I buy Bank of America right now. We go into recession. Bank of America goes to $25. How upset with myself am I going to be if I realize I paid twice as much as this thing is worth? Or if I feel like I got a bargain at 46, I'd be so excited to buy more at 25. And if you're sitting there thinking, oh man, I paid too much and I went in because Buffett owns it and- Berkshire's sitting there having bought it at, I actually don't know, but you said five. five. So let's say five, feeling totally fine about the $25 yeah. price. Come feeling down, great. Part of the process, you know. <laughs> We're too big to bother ups getting out. Ups and downs. Oh, you just the ride through the downs. downs. <laughs> <laughs> We're laughing because Buffett and Munger both make a virtue out of necessity. 
they can't get out. You guys realize that, right? They, I mean, they can't just unload a position that where they, they own fifteen percent of the company. I don't know. They do. They sell. They don't do. They that. do. They don't do where they own fifteen percent. When's the last time they owned that big a chunk of something and they unloaded it? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Wells Fargo. Oh, really? Yeah, and it cratered it, man. <laughs> Wells Fargo was like getting pummeled because Buffett was like, "Ah, eh, I'm done with these guys. They're mm. they're not honest, and I'm through with them." Yeah, that was a right? rough one. That was definitely a rough one. That talk about mistakes. That was a Oof. mistake from start to finish. That was that, that was, was an just... example of a management team wrecking a brand. Yeah. yeah, but being unable to because the Wells Fargo moat is so large. And therefore, Wells Fargo didn't disappear. It just went through a massive slump in its stock price and value, by the way. Um, what is it? Wells Fargo WFC? Yeah. Um, looking here at five years. So Wells was at almost 70 and it went down to 25. Jeez. And a big chunk of that happened when Buffett just like, I'm out of here. So uh, because of the scandal that they had. You know, where they were faking accounts right, um, right. from bad management. And, uh, you know, and then now look at if you'd bought it when Buffett was selling it, actually, um, you would have killed it because now it's up to about 50 and you would have doubled your money in the last, you know, year and a half, hmm. two years. So, you know, it's just Buffett was out and didn't want to go back in. Charlie didn't get out. He just stayed in there. So now it's back where it was. And that's the yo-yo process of fluctuations of the market. He likes the company. He's staying with it. Um, Charlie very famously bought Alibaba recently. Buffett didn't. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, a, just a, a comfort zone with what's going on out there. I yeah. think Charlie has a much yeah. higher comfort level with China. Well, so let's talk next time about the logistics of your checklist. because The what's of it? The logistics. I love How logistics. How does a checklist have a logistics? How long does it take you? Do you do it on your computer or on paper? Do you actually check off everything or do you just do it in your head? Do you write down reasons why you check something off or not check something off or do you only do it in your head? These are all things that I like to know. Oh my God. And you call those logistics as a group. I and do. you group all those things together. Those are logistics. How do you physically you use move information this around? checklist? Kind of data logistics? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I was thinking logistics is involving trucks. Sorry, I'm kind of old school. All right, we'll do that. It'll be fun. Till then, time to go play, guys. See ya. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Hi, guys. Thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information or to listen to additional episodes, visit our website at investedpodcast.com and sign up for my virtual workshop right there. Spots are definitely limited for this event. I'm not kidding. They really are. They sell out very quickly. So everything discussed on this podcast, by the way, is either my opinion or it's Danielle's opinion. And it's really important. It's not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your financial advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So remember that. You're on your own here. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I really hope you enjoyed it.